Uh, so, welcome to Addictions Edited, the podcast from the Society for the Study of Addiction. This is a special episode um, in which I will be talking to Professor Wim Vandenbrink, who will be delivering the Society Lecture at this year's SSA Annual Conference, which is going to be in November uh, the 9th and 10th in Newcastle. So if you haven't registered already, then please do so. Um, Professor Van Den Brink, uh, thank you so much for uh, your time, both in November and for joining me today to talk about uh, to talk about your society lecture. Um, can you tell us just very briefly um, what you'll be talking about? Yeah, yeah, I've been asked to talk about ADHD and substance abuse. Now that's a very broad uh, uh, scope of uh, issues that can be covered, but um, I will actually have uh, a few messages. One is that uh, ADHD in patients with substance abuse disorders are not the, uh, the exception, but uh, they're, they're very frequent. Like uh, in one out of four patients with addiction will also have adult ADHD. So that means a very high comorbidity. Second, I will uh, try to show what the, um, the uh, reason is why these two disorders are co-occurring so frequently. And we'll, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the genetics of the both disorders and the overlapping genetics of these disorders. I will talk about uh, the overlapping neurobiology. And of course, I will also talk about the psychological and social aspects of their uh, co-occurring. And uh, I, I think what I will try to show is that uh, uh, environmental factors are important, but they probably are mainly important for those with a genetic vulnerability. And so that is an important message for both uh, prevention and treatment. It means that if this comorbidity is driven by genetic factors in interaction with the environment, that we should definitely look at the biological factors also in the uh, prevention and treatment. And biological interventions could be either pharmacological intervention or uh, neuromodulation, uh, but maybe less so uh, in terms of uh, uh, social interventions or, or psychological interventions. So that is, that is, I think, an important message. And second, if this comorbidity is largely biologically or genetically driven, that also in the treatment, we have to take that into account. So I will talk about that. We, of course, try to prevent uh, children with ADHD uh, becoming addicted, but uh, it will happen anyway, and in quite a high proportion, anywhere between 40 and 50, 55%. So if it happens, they uh, should be treated for these two disorders, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So you're pr primarily focusing on kind of ADHD and, and substance use. Is there a role in that interaction for, for other disorders? I know you've, you've talked a lot about things like conduct disorder um, in the past. Are there, are there other things that are kind of making that more complicated to look at? Yeah, that's definitely the case. So, of course, first of all, you have to decide and you have to check whether the relationship that we find between ADHD and, uh, and substance use disorder, whether it's really that relationship or whether that relationship is completely explained by uh, uh, the correlation between ADHD and uh, conduct disorders. And there is definitely indications that in the case of uh, ADHD and uh, uh, conduct disorders, there's even a higher, higher risk of uh, these kids becoming addicted. 
But uh, by now, there's also clear evidence that ADHD in and by itself, independent of the comorbidity with conduct disorders, has a big risk for the development of substance use disorder. That is not to say that if you have both disorders, the situation is more complex in terms of a higher reliable, uh, uh, higher uh, probability that these kids become addicted, but also that uh, treatment is more complicated. And I would say that it's even more important that we start to think about treating these kids with ADHD and uh, conduct disorder at a very, very early age. Because as we know, or most people might know that uh, conduct disorder is treatable, but mainly if you start treating at a very early age. Now, the good message is that also, if you want to prevent ADHD patients become addicted, you also have to start at a very early age. So this is an important message. If we want to prevent AD, uh, substance use disorders in patients with ADHD, whether with or without conduct, we have to start early. And is that something that, because there's a lot more discussion about ADHD, or there has been in the last three or four years, a lot more than there was, say, 10 or 15 years ago. But there is still quite a lot of um, still quite a lot of misunderstanding from what I can gather. Do you have difficult conversations about the notion of treating ADHD with stimulant medication in a way that might then prevent later life substance use disorders? Does that still um, kind of raise its own barriers? Yeah, yeah, we, we don't know only have discussions of uh, treating uh, ADHD children with, with stimulant uh, medication, we have difficulties in explaining that ADHD is an existing bona fide uh, mental disorder. And uh, I always say to people say, I'm not sure that ADHD exists. Uh, maybe it's just an invention of uh, lazy teacher or incompetent uh, parents. I always say to them, okay, you don't believe that it exists but kids die from it. And mm. I want to say they die because if you look at the epidemiology, they, you can see that uh, uh, accidents and sometimes also fatal accidents are much more common in uh, children with ADHD, this so-called non-disorder than children without ADHD. So I think it's an important uh, notion that ADHD is on a biological level. Also our normal mental disorder definition is an important uh, mental disorder. Now, the second is whether you want to treat your children with this ADHD always or at all with, uh, with medications that has an effect on the brain. Um, and of course, if, uh, if, I, if I think about it without having any knowledge, I would be I would actually be careful with my kid to be treated with any medication for any disease. Uh, but a lot of people wouldn't have doubts when it would be about epilepsy or so. They can see the obvious problems of the kid and they, I think they will all agree that uh, treatment would be important. Now, if you look at the behavior of ADHD children and you look objectively about the problems that parents have, not because they're incapable because often they're incapable with or capable with other kids that they have but they cannot manage their ADT because the kid itself has such specific characteristics they can be interesting they can be creative but they're also highly uncontrollable and uh, highly inattentive and these kids they suffer terribly because they they cannot uh, get along with other kids they have fights they uh, fail in school and if you see what medication can do to these kids, 
uh, very quickly many times, like in a day or two days, you see the effects. Uh, then you start to think this is not just uh, bad parenting. This is uh, a kid that, that needs help, needs our help. And uh, a lot of kids are happy with it. Not all kids. Not all kids are all the time happy with it. And so it's, uh, it, it's an important and for me, uh, a very interesting and, and fun game together with parents and children to, to lead them to this period, through a period of, uh, of hardship and make them take their medication. Now, most of the time we don't start with medication immediately. We, we try first some coaching, we do some cognitive behavior therapy, but many of these kids don't uh, benefit enough of that. And then medication can really be a, a great solution both for parents and children, and it can be uh, preventive of having uh, all kinds of other problems in, 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 in uh, their adolescence and finally in, in adulthood. Uh, among them, uh, a much lower probability that they will become addicted. So that's what I have to say to parents. Please, if if, if I would have an ADHD kid, I, I would always think about making medication, but I, I'm sure it's not easy. Now, this, the question is, is medication bad for the brain? Because that's an issue. Maybe it, it helps for a while, but uh, meanwhile, you, you damage the brain. And so there has been studies on uh, on, on what uh, long-term use of ADHD is doing to uh, developing brain. And basically what we see that the disorder ADHD is uh, actually some kind of a slow maturation of different parts of the brain. And especially parts that are stimulated uh, to mature under the influence on, on the dopamine. And what you see with stimulant treatment is that uh, uh, the brain, you help the brain mature. And you see, for example, that in certain parts of the brain, we always call it the uh, the basal ganglia, they're relatively underdeveloped and just a little smaller than with non-ADHD kids. And in populations of children and adults with ADHD that are treated with, uh, with, uh, with stimulants, you see just that they have a normal size of their uh, uh, that part of the brain. And so I think it helps mature the brain. And it does so probably better by children, even if you don't take it for a certain time than with adults, probably the effects are more transient then. So treating children uh, with uh, ADHD with the stimulants probably helps them get a more mature brain and, and get even with the, the other kids. So this would be my message to, to people who say that uh, uh, ADHD doesn't exist. It exists because it kills kids and uh, it makes them very unhappy and uh, medication uh, can definitely help them. Um, so, so kind of moving moving to kind of towards treatment and I know you're intending to talk uh, about treatment at the at the annual conference. For a, for a lot of people I suppose of, of, of my age or older where ADHD wasn't so recognized in schools as perhaps it is today, um, you may get a lot of people who've developed substance use disorders and are now retrospectively understanding or discovering or asking questions about whether they they have ADHD, adult ADHD. Can that be difficult to diagnose among people who are, who are currently using drugs? Yeah, it can be difficult. Not always. It depends a little bit what kind of drugs they use. Of course, the most used drugs are uh, tobacco and alcohol. We, we tend to forget that, that these are the most dangerous drugs, the most used drugs, and they make most of the fix victims. 
Now, in terms of alcohol and, and tobacco, I think if that's the only drugs are being used, I think the, uh, the overlap of symptoms of these uh, addictions and ADHD or adult ADHD are not so big. And I think it's not so difficult to make uh, the distinction between the two. Now, it becomes more complicated when it's about uh, using and, or, or addictions to, uh, to, to stimulants, where some of the behaviors are of the stimulant use and the stimulant addiction look very similar to some of the ADHD symptoms in terms of the uh, sometimes the problems with attention, uh, many times the uh, hyperactivity, uh, the oversensitivity for reward. I think you can see a lot of the same uh, uh, symptoms, actually. Uh, and so there it will be more difficult. Now, on a more practical level, we have done some studies also with the uh, international collaboration of ADHD and substance abuse, uh, the CASA. We have uh, been doing studies and uh, looking at when you can actually start doing the, uh, the screening and diagnosis. And what we found is that in uh, patients who come to an addiction treatment center, we, we always screen them for ADHD and we do, we do the screening as soon as possible. As soon as they're not completely intoxicated, they can still still use some, um, some drugs, but uh, as soon as they have a period where they're not completely intoxicated, we, we start to do um, uh, a screening. And there is easy screening measures for ADHD of adults. Uh, it's not very difficult. And, when the screening is positive, we decide that we should do uh, uh, a diagnostic interview. And in the diagnostic interview, of course, we don't only ask the, the patient, we also ask uh, uh, key informants. And many times we get a very good view on whether the symptoms that they present are uh, ADHD or, or substance use or substance use disorder related. Um, and, and if that's the case, we, uh, start treatment and treatment will also help us in, in either confirming or disconfirming uh, our diagnosis. And then with time, if the, um, the, 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 the addiction becomes milder or people use less of the, of the drugs that they used to use, we, we redo uh, the, the diagnostic process. And, and we look again whether the diagnosis is still there, uh, whether there's any changes in, in, in from, from the, the first time. But we, we, we advise to start screening as soon as possible and not wait till the substance use disorder problem is, is resolved. In many cases, it will not resolve by itself. And in many cases, people are gone before we can do the very nice assessment uh, with, with a fully clean and long clean patient. So we, we start early. And, and, and what are the treatment options that are available for people with co-occurring um, ADHD and substance use? Again, there we have we have quite some studies available in this comorbid group. Uh, most of the studies are done with uh, with medication, but there is some studies with uh, uh, psychological interventions. Uh, I think the most promising studies are with the medication, and so there have been something like fourteen, fifteen randomized controlled trials. Uh, most of them with methylphenidate or dexamphetamine some with uh, non-stimulant uh, treatments for ADHD. Uh, what we see as soon as people that come for treatment uh, in an addiction treatment center and they also have ADHD, if you start to give them medication, treatment retention is much better. 
So they stay in treatment for a longer period of time. And the difference is very big. Now, that's very nice to have them in treatment and let them stay in treatment. But at the end, that's not the goal of being in treatment. Uh, so they stay in treatment. But if you look at the randomized control trials, there is very little effect of these stimulant medications and the other medications on their ADHD and almost no effect on their drug use. So that's very disappointing. And uh, so we started to think, well, why is that? Why is it? Because let's be fair, uh, methylphenidate and uh, dexamphetamine, these are the most effective medications that we, know, we have in, in psychiatry by far. And uh, why, why don't they work here so well? And um, some years ago, we did a study uh, and we were comparing the effects of uh, uh, long-acting methylphenidate in, um, in patients with ADHD only and ADHD and cocaine dependence. And what we saw in that study where we gave both groups the same amount of methylphenidate, we saw that the medication concentration in the blood was the same. So there's no problem there. They, they resorb and the, the blood concentrations are the same. But then we did this SPECT study. So we were looking in the brain, especially looking at the uh, dopamine transporter, which are supposed to be the working mechanisms of the uh, methylphenidate. And what we saw is that with the same doses of medication in the patients with the comorbid uh, cocaine uh, dependence, the occupation of the dopamine transport was much lower than in the patient with only ADHD. So it made us think that what's going on, we don't seem to, to, to occupy all the receptors uh, that we want to occupy in this comorbid group. So maybe we should have higher dosages of the medication that we normally use. And so happily, there are now two studies, one from Sweden. The study from Sweden shows very clear that high doses, very high doses of methylphenidate, up to 180 milligrams per day, which is about three times the normal maximal dose. They uh, result in very good uh, improvement in ADHD and a big reduction in this group in, uh, in amphetamine, uh, illegal amphetamine use. Uh, so that was actually supporting our feeling that higher doses are needed. Then later, there was an American study among uh, patients with ADHD and uh, cocaine dependence, and they used uh, uh, doses of dexamphetamine slow, uh, slow release preparations uh, between 60 and 80 milligrams, robust doses, as they call it, because they don't want to use the word high, <laughs> robust doses of dexamphetamine, and they had very good effects, both on the uh, ADHD symptoms, uh, response a number needed to treat of two or three very nice results, and also with a big reduction on all their cocaine use. So I think there is now clear evidence, although it's limited in size, that, uh, that if this is working, higher dosages of uh, uh, methylphenidate or amphetamine, so the stimulants in, in these patients. There's very few studies with, with other medications. So I don't say that other, other medications don't work, but this is what we know. Higher dosages of the standard medications seem to do better than the standard dosages. Now, the question is, of course, this is, in both cases, these patients with ADHD were addicted to stimulants. And we started to treat them with high dosages of stimulants. So what 
could be said, and there's no way to disprove that, is that actually we replace their, uh, uh, their stimulant addiction to a stimulant treatment by those, like we do with methadone in patients with, uh, uh, with heroin dependence. Now, I have nothing against it if people function much, much better with the substitution treatment. There's nothing against it. But we have to discuss that with, uh, with the patients, what we're doing. Are we just treating their ADHD? And as a consequence, they're also doing better with their drug use. Or do we just providing them a substitution treatment? There are some indication that it's not just substitution treatment. For example, in the American study, it was very clear that in most patients, if the improvement occurred, it was first an improvement of their ADHD symptoms, and only in the later phase you saw a reduction in their uh, cocaine use, which means that probably it's not only substitution, but it is first treating their ADHD and that in turn having an effect on their substance use. There's another indication in the Swedish study where uh, these patients that were dependent on, on amphetamines, after the treatment, they, they used much less amphetamines, but there was also a reduction in the use of uh, alcohol, opiates, and, uh, and cannabis, indicating that, again, it's not only a replacement of one uh, stimulant by another stimulant, but uh, something more is happening. But I must say, there are so far no studies of uh, patients in, uh, with uh, uh, ADHD and, for example, cannabis use disorder or a alcohol use disorder. So these studies really have to be done. But there are indications that they might, uh, the, the, the stimulant treatment might also be effective in, in these groups of patients. But there is no, it's, 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 it's a suggestion that comes from the data. It's not all. It's a, it's a rapidly building area. Um... It's not rapidly building. It's very difficult, these studies. And the studies that I mentioned are, if I say it, they're hard, 2014, 2015. Right. Ever since, there's no new studies. So it, it's a slow developing uh, <laughs> field. Yeah. It's a frustratingly slow developing field, yeah. <laughs> uh, before, we, uh, before we kind of finish off, um, you mentioned there briefly about um, ICASA, the International Collaboration of ADHD and Substance Abuse. Um, can you just describe uh, what that organization is and, and, and what it does? Yeah, yeah, happy to do that. ICASA is, a, is an international organization of uh, uh, institutes that are involved in the, uh, the treatment of uh, uh, patients with addiction and, uh, and other mental disorders. Um, and institutes that do the treatment, but also have an interest in uh, in research. Um, we are a, a non-profit organization. Uh, we have basically no funding to do our research. And so the research that we're doing is most of the time simple research, but with very important questions, as we think. So, for example, our first study was uh, actually on the prevalence, because as you started before, not everybody recognized the, uh, the existence and uh, the validity of ADHD or the prevalence and say, okay, you see it every now and then. And I think we were one of the first that really showed that uh, there's uh, a high uh, prevalence, so high that we actually concluded that uh, any patients that comes to addiction treatment should be uh, uh, checked for, should be uh, uh, screened for the presence of uh, of ADHD. 
So that was one of the first findings. We also found that you can do the screening very early in the treatment process. Because we did these screenings uh, right at the beginning. We did them uh, after uh, uh, abstinence and we saw that there was a, a big overlap. So it really reassures the idea that, uh, that you can do the screening very early. We also showed in these studies that uh, if you have ADHD and substance use, you're also likely to have many other disorders. So that we should be aware of that. And the treatment is, uh, in many cases, not, not simple, but we can do something. In our current study, we're, uh, we're looking in, in, I think, something like 12 countries in Europe, uh, uh, and also one uh, country and one study in uh, one site in the US and a site in uh, Puerto Rico. We're, we're looking actually what kind of treatment these patients get. And so the study is still ongoing and will be published soon. Uh, but they can already say that if you look at the, the non-American sites, you see that uh, there is very few patients uh, are being treated. Maybe first to say that in many sites, including the U.S., uh, the diagnosis ADHD is made the first time when they come to treatment for the addiction. They were never uh, diagnosed before. That's at least 50% of all the patients were never diagnosed before. Then with regard to treatment, uh, that's very different in, in Europe and, uh, and in the US. In, in, in the US, they're much more often treatment, treated with, uh, uh, with stimulants. Uh, Sorry, they are much more often, much more often treated with medication, but not with stimulants. Okay. Uh, and in Europe, they're much less frequently treated with medication. But if they're treated with medication, they're treated with stimulants. Okay. Um, probably that has everything to do with the fear in the U.S. that stimulants will be abused, misused, or uh, there will be diversion to the black markets. And uh, we're not naive. We don't think that there is no risk at all, but we do think that, and, and there is good data about that, that the risks in these patients is much smaller than, than, than is often uh, thought. And of course, we're careful. If we start to treat these patients with stimulants, we, we're not giving them uh, uh, weeks of, uh, of pills. We, we carefully build up the relationship. Then we carefully start to use the, the first medication. We, we give small prescriptions and we keep going on being in touch with patients. So we, we, we recognize the risk, but I think the risk is smaller than sometimes uh, uh, mentioned and uh, that we can actually uh, prevent the risk by having a good patient treatment relationship and doing the necessary things in, in our prescription practices. Fantastic. Uh, uh, before we wrap up, is there anything that you've not spoken about that you'd like to? Any? The only thing we, we didn't talk about is, of course, uh, maybe that is where, where psychiatry should move altogether is prevention. There is always a, a, a tension between what you want to do in prevention of mental disorders. And a lot of people think about prevention, especially about addiction, that we have to do a lot of uh, uh, prevention, primary prevention in, in schools. Uh, and so as far as I, I, I know, I think this kind of prevention is not very successful, not very effective. 
And so we have to start to think about other ways of prevention and spending our money in a different way. Not a little bit to every kid in the world, but maybe a little bit more to kids uh, that uh, are more likely to develop an addiction. And children with ADHD are definitely a group that is, uh, is very likely to uh, develop addiction. And we can see them. We can see them in school. Uh, if we would decide that every kid with uh, absenteeism more than you could expect from normal kids, then I think you should start to think and to talk about ADHD and start to think about treating ADHD. Now, there have been quite some studies now that show that if you start to treat ADHD children at an early age, and then I mean between seven and nine with medication, stimulant medication, that uh, the probability that they develop an addiction is reduced by more than 50%. So here there is really a, a possibility of, uh, of doing some effective uh, uh, prevention. So I think there's, there's a, a, an important message and uh, I will definitely spend some time during the lecture on, on this issue. And that, that's preventing um, substance use disorders rather than preventing ADHD? That's... Yeah, I think preventing ADHD is a little bit more difficult because it occurs very early. And we see the first medication, so we can treat early, but preventing is not so easy. First of all, it's uh, it's um, uh, childhood ADHD is uh, has a strong genetic component. Um, the same is actually true for for uh, uh, alcohol and drug dependence. There's a strong genetic component, but if you look at the genetic component of the comorbid patients. The genetic component is overriding. Like, for example, the genetic vulnerability uh, contribution in alcohol depends about 50%, 50% environment, 50% uh, uh, genetics. With adult ADHD, it's probably rather similar. With childhood ADHD, it's much higher. With adult ADHD, it's probably also something like 50%. If you look at the the uh, genetic vulnerability of the combination of ADHD and alcohol dependence, the genetic contribution is about 90%. And genetic contribution means both the direct genetic effects and the genetic effects that are influencing the effects of the environment. So, for example, if children have very serious uh, trauma, it doesn't mean they get uh, serious mental disorders only if you have a certain genetic predisposition. And that is true also for this comorbidity. The genetic vulnerability is about 90%, meaning that it's 90% build up from one, the, the direct genetic effects and the genetic effects on the vulnerability due to uh, uh, traumatization and that, that kind of uh, environmental factors. So it is very important that, that we can see that. And, uh, so genetics are important and genetics are closely related to biology and biological treatments uh, therefore should probably be our first choice. Not forgetting that, of course, these patients with uh, ADHD also have a lot of social problems and, and we should address them because uh, uh, we shouldn't leave them alone with, uh, with their medication and still being in a, in a difficult uh, negative position. So I'm, I'm not claiming that we should be a all, only medication and pure biological diehards that should meet these kids. So they have a lot of problems, but uh, you shouldn't forget their medication. 
It, uh, it, it's an incredibly complex area and it's fascinating as well. Um, I really look forward to uh, hearing more from you about this uh, at our annual conference in November. Uh, Professor Wim van den Brink, thank you so much for your time today. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.